We are coming up on both Thanksgiving and Hanukkah, and what I want to talk about is the connection among Thanksgiving, Hanukkah, and Passover. They're all the same holiday, to sort of give you a premonition of what's going to go on. You all know the story of Thanksgiving. George Washington proclaimed Thanksgiving upon the ratification of the Constitution. All three of these Passover, Thanksgiving, and Hanukkah have to do with out-of-control government. And I owe Rabbi Foreman at Aleph Beta the connection between Passover and Hanukkah. He has got an excellent series on the connection, and it turns out that the events of Hanukkah are exactly mirrored in Passover. We have out-of-control government in the case of Pharaoh in Egypt, we have out-of-control government in the case of Antiochus and the Greeks, and we had out-of-control government during our revolution. The problem with the revolution was the colonies were crown colonies, and Parliament was trying to enact laws for them. And so what the attitude of the colonists was is, wait a minute, we are not under Parliament. You guys have got no authority to enact laws for us. And that was the crux of the argument. So the taxation problem, you know, no taxation without representation, wasn't the amount of the tax, although I'm sure some of the people complained about that too. The problem was that Parliament had no authority to levy taxes on them, hence the revolution. So in all three cases, you have government that's out of control, and in all three cases, the holidays commemorate the freeing of God's people from out-of-control government. So let me give you a little history. You've all read this, but I will remind you in case you haven't read Maccabees recently. If you have a Catholic Bible, you'll have First and Second Maccabees in it. There are actually four books of the Maccabees. They are not considered scripture, but they are perfectly good history. So they're worth reading for that. The deal was Alexander the Great conquered all of the eastern Mediterranean all the way over to India. He died. And when he died, he left no instructions, so his four generals divided things up among themselves. The two we're concerned about are Seleucus and Ptolemy. Seleucus got Syria and the area over to India. Ptolemy got Egypt. Obviously, if you have Syria above and Egypt below, the bridge between them is Israel. So Israel becomes a place of contention between the Ptolemies and the Seleucids for a couple hundred years. And in fact, that's all predicted in the book of Daniel in chapter 11. What it does is it predicts the conflicts between the Seleucids and the Ptolemies. The final resolution of it happens when the Romans come in and take over and we have a new empire. But for our purposes, you get to Antiochus, who is a Seleucid, and he has descendants. Antiochus III conquers Egypt and takes Israel. His son, Antiochus IV, who called himself Epiphanes, the one who is to come, 
is the one that we're concerned about. And what he does is he demands uniformity of thought, which is to say uniformity of worship. He goes in and he says, all right, no more Judaism. You're all going to worship my religion, which is Greek paganism. He did things like defiling the temple and slaughtering a pig on the altar, forbade circumcision of children, forbade studying Torah. And by the way, those prohibitions had a death penalty. So if a Jewish woman was found with a circumcised infant, the infant was killed and hung around her neck, and then she was killed. Charming people. The other part of that is there's also an internal conflict within Israel. You have what are called the Hellenists, who are Jews who have become Greekified. They are saying, we don't want this old Moses stuff, we don't want this Torah stuff. Greek is the way to go, and they became as Greek as they could possibly be to the extent that there were cosmetic circumcision reversals that became very popular. So one of the questions you should ask is, well, how would anybody know that an infant had been circumcised? The answer was, the Hellenists ratted them out. Their own people were enforcing these edicts of Antiochus. One of the things that they did to enforce worship is they sent a commander with a pig to every Jewish town and city. They found the most prominent man in the city, and they said, all right, you are going to sacrifice this pig on a local altar to show that you're loyal. Most of the folks went along with it. So when they came to Moedin, which is where our story starts, and they showed up with a pig. There was a local Hellenist Jew that said, you betcha, and stepped up to participate in the sacrifice. Mattathias, who was a priest, said, eh, and went all Phineas on him. Remember the story of Phineas? Phineas got really upset when the Jews followed the Midianite women and grabbed a spear and killed him on the spot. Mattathias does the same thing. So he kills this Jew who is willing to sacrifice the pig, and then he turns around and he kills all the Syrians, and that just sort of naturally annoys Antiochus. So what Mattathias and his five sons do is they flee to the hills and they start gathering people around them. They rebel, and they throw the Greeks out. And Israel becomes, once again, for about 50 years, a self-governing state. Now, part of the problem is the Greeks have defiled the temple. The Greeks and the Hellenists both. So as soon as they get everybody kicked out, they begin the process of cleansing and rededicating the temple. And of course, you all know the miracle of Hanukkah, where as they're cleansing things, they find a cruise of oil that has been consecrated. So they said, all right, it's going to take us a week or more to set up and consecrate more oil. And they said, well, but we're going to start anyway. So they pour this cruise of consecrated oil into the temple menorah and lit it. Now, theoretically, there is only enough oil in that cruise for a day. And, of course, the miracle is it lasts for seven days until they can consecrate some more oil. 
That's the miracle of Hanukkah, and that's why we do the lights and so forth. So let's look at what's going on. Human government is necessary. I am not an anarchist. God is not an anarchist. Human government is a necessary thing. But human government is also dangerous. And the analogy I would use is fire. Fire is really useful as long as it stays in the stove or it stays in the fireplace or it stays on the top of the candle. When fire gets loosed, you have what's going on in Estes Park right now where you have great destruction. Government's the same kind of thing. As long as it stays within bounds, it is a necessary thing. When it gets out of control, it becomes destructive. As I said at the beginning of this, Passover, Thanksgiving, and Hanukkah are all about the restoration and overthrow of government out of control and the establishment of government that is, in some sense, pleasing to God. So what Moses does when he takes the children of Israel out and wrecks the government of Egypt in the process is he takes them to a place where they get laws and government is set up and God tells them how to organize their society so that there is maximum human freedom within the constraint of law. That's the object of the exercise. So what happened with Antiochus is Antiochus blew all that away and said, no, you're going to worship me. And by the way, Pharaoh said the same thing. So one of the things that human government does when it gets out of control is it starts to regard God as a rival. Because God demands loyalty from people, but out of control government demands the same loyalty. So you have then a conflict between God and government, and government starts to look upon God with suspicion. Does that sound familiar to anybody? I'm very serious. That's what's going on today. We have government now regarding the church with suspicion. They have been for a while, but it's been really bubbled to the surface lately. So the point here is out-of-control government regards God as a rival for power, you start then getting this separation of church and state, if you will. That's not what God ever intended. That's not biblical. The Bible is an intensely political document. What it tells us is how to live together well. That's the essence of politics. So the idea that God should not be involved in government is the beginning, if you will, of the slope that goes downhill. Now, in the case of Pharaoh and the case of Antiochus, they are setting up a rival god, Pharaoh and Antiochus himself, demanding worship. So they are co-opting religion into government. In our case, what we've done is divorced God from government. But the point is that human government has replaced the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. You all remember the book of Daniel. And you've got two visions in there. You've got the vision of Nebuchadnezzar where he sees this magnificent statue with the head of gold, silver, bronze, all that kind of stuff. And you have the vision of Daniel himself in Daniel chapter 7. They're both looking at the same thing. So Nebuchadnezzar, who's a pagan, 
sees this magnificent statue as a sequence of magnificent human governments. I'm the head of gold. Then there's going to be a chest of silver, then a belly of bronze, and then feet of iron. It's a magnificent thing. God, in his vision to Daniel, says, these are dangerous animals. In fact, that's where beasts come in. And I am sort of now thinking about the beasts in Revelation. That may be government. I have to think that over. But my point is, God's perspective of human government is that they are dangerous animals. Man's perspective of human government is of these magnificent things that do great stuff. And the difference, by the way, is the human heart. Remember, I started off by saying, God ordains government. I am not anti-government. I am not an anarchist. But the problem is, governments are run by people. And people have human hearts. You all know what the first mention of the human heart in the Bible is? It's in Genesis, just before the flood. Genesis 6-5. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great on the earth and that every inclination of the thoughts of his heart was over evil continually. That's the first mention of the human heart in the Bible. And it goes downhill from there. Every other mention of the human heart is that or worse. So the problem is not government per se. The problem is people are the ones who run government, and we have human hearts. Everything begins with taxation. This I owe to Rabbi Foreman. He came up with this in his comparison of Passover and Hanukkah. The Hanukkah story in Maccabees says that Antiochus sends sorry Misa. Modern translation render that as Mycenaean commanders. I don't believe that's correct, nor does Rabbi Foreman. What it means is chief tax collectors. The same word has to do with the taskmasters that are put over the Israelites in Egypt, sorry Misa, which are exactors of forced labor. And by the way, that's what taxation is, right? Where the government appropriates some of your labor. And again, I am not anti-taxes. Taxes are a necessary thing. But they become the tool by which people are enslaved. And what happens is, as the Israelites go along in Egypt, it starts off with taxation, and it winds up in slavery. The same thing happens in the book of Maccabees. We send these sorry misum, exactors of forced tribute, in and they speak glowing terms and everybody invites them. And, okay, they're the government with their taxes. Okay, we've got to pay some taxes. And the next thing you know, these tax collectors have destroyed the place, have taken women and children into slavery, and reduced the whole place into slavery. And, oh, by the way, I will gently suggest to you that our tax system is out of control. And again, you had in our revolution, remember the phrase, no taxation without representation. The people who set up the United States were biblically literate. They recognized these patterns. And so when you had a government that was out of control and was asserting the right to tax them when that government had no legal authority, parliament had no authority, they said, whoa, wait a minute, 
we aren't going to put up with that. So you have the same thing three times. At the end of this Maccabean rebellion, you had the institution of Hanukkah. At the end of destruction of Egypt, you had the institution of Passover. At the end of our revolution, after the adoption of the Constitution, you had our Thanksgiving. By the way, one of the things we do every Thanksgiving when we have the family around the table is the oldest son present reads this declaration. Now, therefore, I do recommend and assign Thursday, the 26th day of November, next to be devoted by the people of the states to the service of that great and glorious being who is the beneficent author of all good that was, that is, or that will be, that we may all unite in rendering unto him our sincere and humble thanks for his kind care and protection to the people of this country previous to their becoming a nation, for the signal and manifold mercies and the favorable interpositions of this providence which we experienced in the course and conclusion of the late war. So the whole purpose of thanksgiving here is to thank God for bringing them through the war and allowing them to establish a nation. By the way, this would be hard to read today with our current environment because it explicitly thanks God. So, how does government do this? How do they accomplish this? And I said it starts with taxation, which is appropriating the labor of people. And again, there, in theory, is nothing wrong with taxation. You've got to have a government, and there's got to be support for the government, so that's okay. And what happens is the taxation gets more and more onerous, and you wind up being enslaved. That's what happened in Egypt, and that's what happened in the Maccabean Rebellion. So we have onerous taxes, if not anti-tax, but our IRS is out of control. For example, when the Tea Party was instituted back in Obama's first term, Obama turned the IRS loose on conservative groups and denied them tax-exempt status and shut them down using the IRS. The system that we have now is out of control. The other thing that government tries to do is enforce uniformity of thought. In the case of Egypt and in the case of Antiochus, they did that through religion. In other words, you have got to come and worship at our temple. You have got to sacrifice to us. You've got to regard us as a god. And by the way, that happens in Rome. So when Rome takes over, they do the same thing. And Caesar was a god that everybody had to do a formal worship with once a year. We don't do that quite. What we have is cancel culture. And what that means is if you don't think and speak the way we want you to, we will make you a non-person. You will lose all of your online accounts. You will not be able to communicate. But what I'm suggesting to you is it is the same mechanism, which is to say imposing uniformity of thought on the people. That's the name of the game. And who is enforcing cancel culture? Other peasants just like us. The same thing happened in Egypt. Who enforced the Egyptian edicts? Jews did. 
And I will give you a scripture. Exodus 5.14 And the foreman of the people of Israel whom Pharaoh's taskmasters had set over them. The people who were running the Egyptian police state were Jews. The same thing happened in the Maccabean rebellion. You had Hellenized Jews who thought that Greek was a good deal and Torah was a bad deal. They were the ones who were ratting people out for studying Torah and doing all that kind of stuff. Who is enforcing cancel culture among us? We are. The code name for that is Karen, by the way. Karens who, oh, you're not doing this. Oh, you're not doing that. These are not government officials. These are people who have bought into the concept. It's important that you understand the mechanism. Now, having said all that, what do we do about it? God has not changed. People have not changed. So as I said a while ago, government is okay, but unfortunately it's always run by people. And people have human hearts, and eventually it gets out of control. Things last you know, you know, a couple hundred years, and finally the out of control gets to be so stinky that God gets in and changes things. The cycle repeats itself over and over again in history. You see it in Israel itself. Israel, who's got the temple and the presence of God right in the middle of them, still goes off the rails and has to be corrected. What we're experiencing is nothing new. It is nothing that we are somehow special and it's really worse for us than it was for anybody else. It's just the way things are. So, the first thing to understand is evil is not as competent as God is. Satan is not nearly as good as he thinks he is. God is better. And one of the things that happens is that Satan, because he is not as good and thorough as God, makes mistakes. He sees this big grand vision that he has, and in that process he makes small mistakes. And what happens is people, us, are often in a position to take advantage of those small mistakes. What we can do is we can go through our lives doing what is right in every circumstance that we are able. And what you do then is you trust God to organize the strategy. You don't have to come up with a grand strategy of how we're going to overthrow Satan's empire this time. You don't have to do that. That's God's job. What you have to do is go through your life doing what God would have you do in every circumstance and trust Him that He will arrange circumstances so that those little gaps and those little things that Satan has forgotten are going to be a place where you're going to be doing the right thing at the right time. And what will happen, because it always has, is eventually all of this will unravel. That's the way it always works. And as I say, God hasn't changed, people haven't changed. And the way God works in every circumstance is, in every case, there is somebody who happens to be at the right place in the right time to take advantage of one of Satan's mistakes. 
And the grand strategy of how all this is going to play out, that's above your pay grade. Don't worry about it. Go through your life doing the right thing at the right place at the right time and trust God that he will take that and he will weave it into a strategy that will get us where he wants us to be. And as I've said, this is cyclic. We are in the latter stage of an empire. It has become corrupt because it's run by people just like us who have human hearts and fall into evil. So what's happened now is it's about time for a reset, and I don't have any idea how God's going to do that. But I do know that he will. By all means, if you're politically active or any of those kinds of things, get in there and do it. Absolutely. I'm not suggesting that you sit back on your blessed assurance and just sort of say, well, it'll all work out. No, no. I'm saying you go do things that you think are right. So that's what happened, for example, in the Virginia elections just now. Satan made a mistake. The governor said, your children don't belong to you, they belong to us. That was what he said. You have no say in how we educate your children. They're our children, they're not, you didn't say it quite that way, but that was the message. And all of a sudden, a whole bunch of people woke up. And that governor and his whole administration were swept out of office because he made a mistake. And his mistake was asserting ownership over the children. And by the way, Pharaoh made the same mistake. As we go through Exodus, you'll see Pharaoh offers compromises. Well, you men go out with but leave your children here. Your children belong to me. You can't circumcise your children. They belong to me. There's nothing new here. This is not... We've got this horrible new situation that nobody's ever faced before. Nonsense. It's all the same. You just got to update it for our culture. Mistake taken advantage of by people like us doing the right thing at the right time. And God organizes the grand strategy. And by the way, as I've said before, probably a couple, three weeks ago, despair is a sin. Do not despair. Trust God. Do what's right in every circumstance and let him figure out the outcome. He's better at it than you are.